Good morning. It's good to see you today. It's a little cooler in here than it's been outside this week, so so you got two reasons to be glad to be here today. Because it's the Lord's Day and you can be with the, your church family and you can also get in out of the heat. We're continuing our series of messages talking about the names of God. And this is the fourth message in a five-part series. And, and the thing is, I believe that each time we learn a new name of God, we gain a clearer understanding of his nature and his activity in our life. And one of the things that I've found interesting, because I, I kind of went back and looked over the names that we've done thus far and, uh, and, you know, and what we're doing today, um, it's, it's really interesting the timing of when these names are first revealed in Scripture. Now, many of them are, are found numerous times in the Bible, but, but when you look especially at the very first time that God reveals a name, uh, his name, uh, another one of his names to people, it seems to be during times when they kind of have their back up against a the wall. They're kind of in a, in a significant struggle, crisis moments that are going on. Um, and, and then when God reveals his name to them, it ends up serving as a game changer. You know, it's kind of like they, they have this new understanding of God and what he represents and what he's capable of. And now all of a sudden they look at their dilemma in a whole new light. It's like, hey, we can get through this. We can push forward now, you know, because we have a better understanding of our God. For example, the very first name we did in the series, Kurt kicked off with, and that is Yahweh, appropriately so. The first one, it's found in Exodus chapter 3. It was the very first time that God revealed this name. He revealed it in the midst of the burning bush when he was talking to Moses. And you remember the situation at that point in time is that the Israelites, they had been slaves in Egypt for centuries of time. And things weren't getting better. In fact, they were getting worse. And the people were crying out to God. And, and here comes along Moses. Now, he's been living out in the wilderness for a few decades, and he had already tried on his own effort to deliver some, some Jewish people, and that didn't work out so well. And so I don't think he had it in mind that he would spearhead, you know, uh, a rescue, you know, of the Israelites, because I don't think he thought he was capable of that. But then God reveals at the burning bush that he is Yahweh, the great I am. I am that I am. And, and all of a sudden, this seemed to, to ignite um, within Moses. And Moses, you know, took the lead in delivering the Israelites out of bondage. The second name that we talked about was El Shaddai. And this is a name that God revealed to Abraham uh, we talked about it a couple Sundays ago. It was when Abraham and Sarah, they were struggling with the whole idea of having a child at their advanced age. It was just kind of like an impossibility. So they were cooking up alternative plans of ways to help God fulfill the promise. And so God revealed his name that it's El Shaddai. He is the almighty 
Nothing is too hard for God. That was the very first time that name is, appears in Scripture. And sure enough, you know, they end up having Isaac and, and the rest is history there. Another name, this is what uh, Kurt talked about last Sunday, Jehovah Jireh. And it means that God is our provider. And the first time that this appears is when Abraham is up on the mountain, Mount Moriah, and he's, he's bound up his son according to the command of God, and he's going to be offering him as a sacrifice there. And Abraham's following. He's being obedient, even though I don't believe he had a clue as to how this was all going to turn out because Isaiah was the one that the promise was through, and yet he's going to die now. And it was at the very moment that Isaac was going to be sacrificed that God put a stop to that. And, and uh, uh, then Abraham looks up and he sees this ram whose horns caught in the thicket, and he unties Isaac and he takes the ram and offers him as the sacrifice. And, and this is the, the uh, Jehovah Jireh that God provided. And it was at a crisis moment you could easily conclude. Well, today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 15. And the name of God that we're going to be looking at is Jehovah Rapha or Yahweh Rapha. And I'll, I'll touch on that just a little bit. Um, but Exodus chapter 15 is the very first place this name of God appears. The majority of this chapter is devoted to uh, recording the lyrics of a song of celebration. The Israelites, they, it's a festive moment and there's, there's a long song that is being sung, and we don't really know the tune of the song, but we do see the lyrics in the majority of the chapter. It, it starts out like this, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. A few verses later, he threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank in the depths like a stone. Interesting lyrics, right? Maybe this will inspire Ben to include some of these lyrics in one of the songs we sing on an upcoming Sunday. Especially, I'd like to see how he incorporates these words. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. You know, but that, that's what we see in Exodus 15 is there's a long song and it's all about celebrating, celebrating God and the great deliverance. And you remember what happened, right? What exactly they were celebrating? They were celebrating the fact that God had parted the Red Sea and the Israelites were able to walk across on dry land. And then when they turned back and they saw the Egyptians coming into the midst of the Red Sea, the waters all collapsed and uh, the Egyptian army drowned. But it was a huge celebration. Well, that's what the majority of Exodus chapter 15 is recording for us, that celebration. And then we get toward the end of the chapter, and they travel three days. Well, and let me just read it for you. These are the verses I'm going to read. Exodus 15, starting in verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. 
when they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. That's what the word literally means, bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed, showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. That last little sentence is is really the focal point of what we're going to be talking about here today. But in those five verses, several things are happening. They got done singing the song of celebration, and now for three days they journey, and uh, they don't have any water. That's what verse 22 is talking about. Verse 23, they spotted some water, so you can just imagine. Emotionally, they were getting their hopes up and looking forward to, to drinking uh, to satisfy their thirst. Um, however, the problem is the water is bitter. That's what verse 23 is talking about. So bitter that they, they can't drink it. I don't, I don't know what the worst water is that you've ever drunk before, but you know, being something that you just knew you couldn't drink, you couldn't drink any. No matter how thirsty you were, you couldn't drink any. I, I easily know what the worst water was you know, that I was ever around. And that was uh, the Dead Sea. Um, a couple of the guys here uh, in the church, uh, and then there were some gals too, but, but the guys willingly ponied up and paid $5 a piece to get some disposable swimming trunks. Yeah, there is such a thing. And uh, it's on the east side of the Dead Sea. It was on one, our mission trip to Jordan one year. And so Sean Hawkins and Mark Rogers and I, we each paid the equivalent of $5 and, and got these trunks and put them on. And we waded out into the Dead Sea and, and then kind of swam out to where we were over our head. And, and you know, they, the salt in the Dead Sea, being that it's the lowest place on earth, um, is 10 times more dense, you know, with salt than the ocean is. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can't sink in that. And as we were swimming out, I was trying to be very careful because I didn't want to splash any water in my eyes because I knew that's really going to burn. And uh, I accidentally did splash some, not in my eye, but it went in my mouth. And I just immediately started spitting that out. It was horrible. There's no way you could try to satisfy any kind of a thirst by drinking that. Well, I don't know if that's what this water would have been like, but it was still all the same, something that just they could not consume. It was so bitter. And so what was the result? According to verse 24, they started complaining. They started griping and complaining. I mean, it's amazing when you stop and you look at, at the chapter and in view of what the preceding chapter was all about, it's like one day they're singing there's this huge celebration, and it's just three days later, they're doing nothing but complaining. 
And so Moses cries out to God, and God gives him instruction about taking this piece of wood and throwing it in the water, and then the water becomes sweet, and people are able to drink it at that point. And it's at that moment that God established a statute for the people. And this is a key verse. Verse 26 says, If you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his eyes, pay attention to his commands, and keep all of his statutes, I will not inflict any illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh who heals you. That's that last sentence. That's the statement. Yahweh Rapha, or as the title of the sermon, Jehovah Rapha. Jehovah and Yahweh, Kurt already talked about that in a previous message. It comes from the same Hebrew word. In fact, in Hebrew, uh, in written Hebrew, they don't have vowels, they just have consonants, and it's a four-consonant word, And but Hebrew doesn't have J's, and so I'm not really sure how the whole Jehovah thing, you know, came, came into being. More likely, Yahweh, at least I lean that way, Yahweh's probably more accurate for this particular Hebrew word. But, but it's, it's whether you want to use Jehovah or Yahweh, it's, it's God Rapha. This is the name that God is revealing at this moment in time. And, and the word Rapha, it means multiple things, but they're all, they're all similar somewhat. It means to mend, to cure, to repair, to make whole. The majority of the time that the word is found in the Bible, it's used with the word heal, to heal. The God who heals. I am Yahweh who heals you. Now, there's multiple lessons that we learn in these five short verses. And the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about some of the secondary lessons. I believe there is a primary, and that's going to get us back to this very last sentence. But let's talk about these secondary lessons because they are of value as well. So three of them. Number one, bitter waters often come right after big victories. This is one of the things that you see in this passage. It's weird how this works, but probably a number of us in here have experienced it, where somewhere along the line we've experienced a mountaintop experience, and then following that, perhaps due to overconfidence on our part, or maybe it's the devil stepping up his game because he sees us as being a threat, or maybe it's God deciding it's a good time for a test, or maybe there's a reason in addition to any of those three that I've mentioned but boom, the wind gets knocked out of us and we find ourselves struggling to get our bearings. I think a, a good example, if you're familiar with some of the stories of the Old Testament, a classic example of this involves uh, my favorite Old Testament prophet, and that is Elijah. And, and it's the showdown on Mount Carmel. That's in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. And you can make a note of that and read that at a later time to refresh your memory. But in chapter 18, uh, basically uh, the king at the time is Ahab. His wife, she should be notorious. Um, her name is Jezebel. And she has been all about eliminating the worship of the true God. And part of how she's doing that is she's having all the prophets, uh, God's prophets, executed. And... Uh, um, and so this has kind of been the trend, Baal worship, 
you know, is, is the thing of the day. And so Elijah, he, he challenges the prophets of Baal to this showdown. Ahab goes, and he, the king, he's going to witness all of this. And they go up on Mount Carmel, and, and Elijah allows the prophets of Baal to go first. And so they create whatever their altars look like and their sacrifices, the wood and all that kind of stuff. And the rules to this is that you can set all this kind of stuff up, and you can pray whatever prayers you, know, you want to pray, but you cannot light a match. And so here the prophets of Baal, they set all this stuff up, and then they start dancing around and hooting and hollering and calling upon their God and, and even taking knives and cutting themselves to get their God, Baal's, attention so that he'll consume these sacrifices. But nothing comes of it. All morning passes. We're going through the afternoon. Nothing comes of that. And finally, Elijah's like, okay, you've had enough time. It's my turn now. And so he takes and rebuilds the altar that was there. It hadn't been used in such a long time. But he rebuilds it. He puts wood on it. He puts a sacrifice on it. But he goes a step beyond anything the prophets of Baal did. He builds or digs this trench all the way around it. And then he has people come and dump a ton of water on this thing. So it's soaking wet. It's dripping. And, and the trench is filled with water. And then he calls out and prays to God. And a bolt of lightning strikes you know, the, the sacrifice that's there on the altar, and it burns it up, it consumes the whole thing. You talk about a mountaintop experience. At that time, you know, the people realized, whoa, the living God is the real God. And, and so they destroy the prophets of Baal, and Elijah prays, and he tells King Ahab, you better get down off the mountain quick, because it hadn't rained in years, but he had prayed that it would rain. And so then he told the king, you better go, because it's going to rain. And so Ahab is riding in a chariot, but Elijah is so filled with adrenaline, you can just imagine, he runs down the mountain and outruns Ahab. I mean, you talk about a mountaintop experience, but then you turn the page in your Bible and you go to 1 Kings chapter 19, the next chapter, and you immediately start reading about the king's wife finds out what just happened. Jezebel, and she issues a death warrant on the prophet. And so now there's a, a bounty, there's a price on his head. And, and Elijah is just beside himself. And he, he flees out into the wilderness and he just falls down and he's ready to end it all. And then eventually he finds a cave and he crawls into a cave. So, so here, here we have a situation where Elijah, a mountaintop experience, an incredible victory. But what followed it? Some serious bitter water followed it. Yeah, and, and you probably can relate. You've probably seen that or experienced that in your life. You know, the Israelites, they probably thought that the worst was behind them. The Egyptians are gone. They finally got the Egyptians out of their hair. It was perhaps the greatest miracle of all the miracles in the Old Testament. In fact, to this very day today, the Passover is celebrated. That great deliverance that God brought to pass. The people at that time probably felt like it can't get any better than this. 
That was probably some of the thoughts that were going through their mind in Exodus 15. And then, bam, it hits. They hit a wall in the wilderness of Shur. And uh, there's a play on words there. Because as most Hebrew words go, words have meaning. And the word Shur means wall. So in a very real sense, they hit a wall in the wilderness of Shur. So that's one of the the secondary lessons here is that bitter waters oftentimes come after big victories in our life. The second thing that I see is that bitter waters often are accompanied by a load of discouragement. Discouragement can have a powerful influence in distorting our perspective on things, especially when you couple it with anxiety. And then all of a sudden, everything gets distorted. This is what happened to Elijah in the story I just got done telling you in 1 Kings 18 and 19, is his whole perspective was now distorted when Jezebel put this bounty on his head. Um, he, he, He immediately started thinking, in fact, there's two times in that chapter, he's crying out to God and just basically beside himself. He is so discouraged, there isn't a single prophet left except for him. Look at his words, and he says this two times. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Is that accurate? No, that's not accurate. A fellow by the name of Obadiah had taken 100 of God's prophets and hid them away so that Jezebel couldn't get her hands on them. So there's a hundred prophets of the true God that are still around. And that chapter specifically tells us there are 7,000 people, Israelites, that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Elijah isn't alone. There's a hundred others like him as far as being a prophet. And there are thousands of Israelites that have remained true to God. But that's not how Elijah sees it. He's just like ready to die. It's like it's over. This is the end. And that's kind of what's happening here in Exodus chapter 15. They were only three days removed from the most spectacular of all events that is still celebrated down to this year. But the heat of the desert had more of an effect than just drying out their mouths. It dried up their minds as well. They had forgotten how faithful God had just been, how faithful God had proved himself to be. They had forgotten about that. And now they're all discouraged and they're beside themselves and all they can do is complain. You know, forgetting forgetting the past and forgetting the faithfulness of God, that's forgetting, period. It's kind of a chronic thing. That's a part of human nature, isn't it? We have such short memories of of even the good and the faithful things that God has done. It reminds me of a story that I read about, about these three sisters that lived together. They were 92, 94, and 96 years old. And uh, this one evening, the 96-year-old, she said that she was going to take a bath, and so she filled the bathtub full of water, and, and then she uh, um, walked over to it, 
and raised one foot and put her leg in the bathtub. Then all of a sudden she stopped and she shouted out to her sisters and said, was I getting in the tub or out of the tub? The 94-year-old sister said, just a minute, I'll come up and see. She took a couple steps on the stairs and then she stopped and said, wait, was I going up the stairs or down the stairs? The 92-year-old was, was sitting in the kitchen having some tea, listening to her sisters with a smirk on her face, and she shook her head and said, I sure, sure hope I never get forgetful, knock on wood. And then she shouted out to her sisters, I'll be up to help you guys as soon as I answer the door. <laughs> okay. We are so forgetful. Maybe this is one of the reasons that when you look in the Bible, you will find over 230 passages that exhort us to remember. Remember this or that. Remember something. There's, that comes up like 230 times in the Bible because we have proved to be so forgetful, even of the incredible things that God has done in our life things that he just did this last week and we forget as we move in to another week. There's a third um, lesson here that uh, uh, we, we see in this passage, and that is that bitter waters often serve as a test of faith. That's what it says right in the middle of our text. It refers to this as being a test of faith. Let me show you in verse 25. It says, he made a statute, an ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. This was a test. It wasn't simply a matter of bad luck that they ran into this bitter water. It was a test that God was creating. And that's how we need to look at trials. That's how we need to look at hardships that we encounter in our life, that these are tests. Look at this particular passage in the New Testament. James chapter 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Okay, so it, it, it's not just talking about one particular kind of trial or hardship. It says of many different kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. You see, God uses adversity. He uses trials. He uses troubles and hardships in our life to stretch us and to grow us. Right now, you might be going through some sort of a trial. You might be experiencing some bitter water in your life right now. It might be something personal. It might be something health-related. It might be something that's going on within your family. It might be at the workplace that you're planning on going to tomorrow. Um, but you may very well be going through a rough stretch right now of one sort or another. The insight that is found in the Bible is that these are not enemies of faith. Rather, they are opportunities for growth, growth in our faith. Here's another passage that talks about this. Now, granted, this is coming from the message, but I like the way it worded it in 1 Peter chapter 4. It says, friends... When life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. 
Instead, be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is a spiritual refining process with glory just around the corner. A refining process. So there's a lot of secondary lessons here, and they all have value. And they actually speak to where we live our lives right now. But I believe in this passage of Scripture, there's one primary lesson. And that is what fits this into the series that we're doing right now. And the primary lesson is, our God is a healer God. This is what our God specializes in. It's easy to think of bitter water as being a negative thing that just kind of gets in the way and that it really doesn't serve a purpose. But the reality is it does serve a purpose. It serves a very real purpose. It served a clear purpose. It gave God the opportunity to help people to know him better. That was the purpose that this bitter water was all about. He was going to drive home in a big way to the people that he is the one who can fix the situation you're in. He is the one who can mend whatever it is that's torn in your life. He is the one who can repair what is broken. He is the one who can cure whatever sickness you're struggling with. He is the one who can make you whole when you feel that you aren't. God teaches us these things during times of crisis. Things that we would never learn any other way. That's when he drives this home. And it's not just a, a word, this word Rapha, you know, that, that it's Yahweh Rapha. It's, it's not just that, that it is spiritual healing, that it is limiting itself in regards to what this is talking about, this particular name of God. It goes beyond spiritual, or I mean, it goes beyond physical healing. Let me give you an example, just based on the story I told you uh, a couple minutes ago with Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah said to the people, come near to me. So all the people approached him. Then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. This was an altar. This was during the showdown with the prophets of Baal. This is an altar that hadn't been used for a long time. And so he had to repair it. The Hebrew word behind the word repaired, Rapha. It's the very same word. Of course, here it's not directly referencing God, but it does give insight when God reveals himself as his name being Yahweh Rapha. So it's not just healings that God does. God can repair what is broken. God can bring back together what may be in shambles, what is in pieces. That is what God specializes in. You see, what we're looking at is one of the most important aspects, I think, in God's nature. In big part, because it touches us right where we live our lives, during our most vulnerable moments of our life. And when you look at Jesus, what what does the Bible say about Jesus? It says that he is the exact representation of God. Here's the passage to refresh your memory. Hebrews chapter 1, the way this book begins, it says... 
In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When you look at Jesus, you gain in your understanding of God. Because what you're seeing there, this is God. This is this is who God is. And it helps deepen your appreciation for that. So when we do that, when we rifle in, focus on Jesus during the life that he lived here on earth, what do we see? Fortunately, we got four gospels in the Bible from people that saw firsthand, you know, the life that Jesus lived, his teachings and miracles and all of that. What did they see? Let me show you a couple passages. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, this is early in his ministry, Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then news about him spread throughout Syria, so they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and what did he do? He healed them. What was that Hebrew passage? The exact representation of his being. What we're seeing here with Jesus gives us insight into our God. A little bit later in his ministry, you see more of the same. Matthew 15, large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Yeah, Jesus is the exact representation of God. But again, I want to remind you, we're not just talking about, we're not just talking about physical health-related issues. We are talking about that, but we're not only talking about that. God is wanting us to understand that he is Yahweh Rapha, that he is the God who heals. He is the God who repairs. He is the God who makes whole. Now, I've got to admit, I find myself personally drawn to this name of God, to this particular aspect of God. There's a verse in the Old Testament that um, for several decades now has been a very special verse to me. Psalm 41, verse 3, it says, The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. And uh, when I first became a Christian, uh, you know, that, that verse was just another verse in Psalms, but uh, 10 years later, that verse became my verse. That verse became the experience of my life. In 1987, when I was struggling with stage four cancer, and I spent over two months that year um, in the hospital, and multiple additional months laid up in bed, bedridden at home, and my kidneys were failing because of the effects of the cancer. And as a matter of fact, I, uh, I was retaining so much fluid that, uh, and I had so much issues as far as pain and stuff going on that 
that they were giving me pain shots, you know, when I was in the hospital and they would switch from one hip to the other hip. And I forgot all about that until I was, you know, nailing down some of my thoughts for this message. And uh, God kind of brought a memory out of the past that I, I had forgotten about. All these needle shots. When you spend two months in the hospital, you get a lot of needle shots. And, but they wouldn't stay in one hip because there were so many. Every few hours, they were giving me another pain shot. And, and the problem was I had so much fluid. I was keeping my head elevated, my arms elevated, my feet elevated. So all the fluid, you could tell, was going to my torso. And they had to re replace the bed sheets, you know, at least twice, if not three and sometimes four times a day because they'd just get drenched. They were soaked. And it was because I was leaking out of every one of these holes, little needle holes. And that's how much fluid. And when my, when my kidneys started working on the fourth uh, month of chemotherapy, I lost 75 pounds in two weeks. That's how much fluid I had that had built up in my body. And, uh, you know, and, and I look back on all of that, and that was a horrible year you know, in my life, a year I didn't think I was going to get through, and a lot of others, for obvious reasons, didn't think I was going to get through. But, but you know, here I am on the other side of all of that and, and reflecting and celebrating and trying to remember the fact that God is the healer, God. He is the one that can repair whatever it is that is broken. Here I was on my bed of illness, on my sick bed. And God brought me through all of that. And, and so this particular name of God has special meaning, uh, not only because of that, but because of, of what, what moves and motivates God to do all of that. God does that because he cares. It's not out of a, some sense of obligation that, that God, you know, reaches into our lives and and mends whatever it is that's broken. It's because he genuinely cares. But yet you'll find different passages say, what am I? What is man that he is so thoughtful of? So that's, that's the incredible thing about God. You have this verse in the New Testament. 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is the God that we serve. You got something troubling you? In your life, you got something that has just taken your life and turned it upside down, and you are just at a loss to know where do I even begin to start rebuilding, you know, in my life. You find yourself in that situation, call upon him because he sees it and he cares about whatever your situation is, whatever it is that's plaguing your life. He will help you with it. Another verse in Psalms. Psalm 55, give your burdens to the Lord and he will take care of you. Now, all this doesn't automatically mean that he's going to swoop in and remove every, every pebble from your path. It doesn't mean he's going to swoop in and take every thorn, you know, from your life. But the reality is he can if he determines that, 
that is the course of action he needs to take. He is fully capable of doing that. We like to focus on the passages that show where he actually did that. We like to focus on, on how Jesus touched lepers and he healed them, how those that were born blind, Jesus gave sight to them. We like to read about, like in Mark chapter 5, the woman who was struggling with bleeding for 12 years. She had spent every penny of her money, seen every doctor she could think of, and yet her condition was only worse. She was at a total loss, and then the day came she heard Jesus was coming through town, and she fought the crowd and squeezed in just to touch the hem of his garment. And she was healed from. We like stories like that. We like the story of Hezekiah when the prophet came to him and delivered the news, put your house in order because Hezekiah, you're going to die. And the prophet stepped out of the room and was walking out the courtyard. And prophet or the, um, Hezekiah, he turned toward the wall and he was pleading with God, please God, Heal me of this. And God prompted the prophet before he even left the courtyard to make a U-turn and go back to the king, King Hezekiah, and uh, um, say, oh, and God is saying that it's 15 years from now that you will die. He has heard your cry. He's heard your prayer. And you have an extension of 15 more years. We like to read about those kinds of stories. But the reality of the matter is there's also stories about like the prophet that followed Elijah. His name was Elisha. And he was a guy that he'd healed people on a number of occasions. But yet the text tells us that he one day got sick with something that he eventually died from. It's just like, whoa, wait a minute. I don't want to really focus on that. Or where Paul was writing to the young preacher Timothy, and Timothy apparently had some kind of chronic illnesses. And he's given him some advice of what to do with his stomach problems and, and all. And it's just like, okay, well, how come, you know, Timothy just presto changeo, you know, it doesn't get healed. Well, that's not the way it worked in Timothy's case. Or what about Paul himself, where it talks about the thorn in the flesh? And it says in this text that three times Paul pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But God's answer was, no. In fact, these were God's words. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And when Paul understood that better, he learned to accept the situation that he was in as far as this thorn is concerned. And so it's, it's not a matter of, well, God will every time, every single time, he'll come in and he'll remedy, he'll remove whatever the issue is. He's capable of doing that. But sometimes based on his will, he chooses not to because he sees a much bigger picture of things than what we do. I find it interesting, and I want to conclude with this thought. I find it interesting, going back one last time, to Exodus chapter 15, that God chose to use a piece of wood to heal the bitter water. Don't really know how that works. See that chunk of wood over there? Throw that in that bitter water and the water becomes sweet. I mean, it's okay. But God chose a piece of wood to bring about this healing. 
as a demonstration to everyone of what he was capable of. Well, it causes me to remember that there was another time God used a piece of wood in a significant way. Peter says it like this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. It was a piece of wood that our Savior Jesus was nailed to. And he was there because that's what we needed to be healed of our sin. The broken relationship with God that, that we brought to pass by our sin was repaired through what happened on this piece of wood. This passage is referencing the ultimate healing of all, where our Lord, in a big way, lived up to his name, God, our healer. During this time of communion, let's pray. Father, I thank you for being a God who cares, being a God that doesn't turn his back on us and write us off thinking, well, you brought it on yourself, live with it. But rather instead, you stepped into our realm, into our world, and you did something very incredible. Something so amazing, no one could have guessed it. I'm convinced Satan didn't see it coming. You came and became our substitute by paying the ultimate price, the penalty for our sin. You took our place so that we could be restored, so that the broken relationship that we had due to sin could be repaired. And that came by way of a great price on your part. We celebrate that. The Red Sea and what happened there, major. That was a major miracle. But not near as big as what happened on Calvary. We celebrate the fact that you care, you love us, and we'll spend our lifetimes and even all eternity trying to wrap our mind around that while we celebrate it. Thank you for being a God who heals. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.